Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. We talked in late 2021 about his excellent book titled Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. I'll put a link to that interview and discussion and the book in the show notes to this show. Today, we're going to talk about a book that came to my attention. Amazon showed it to me. And Dr. Richard B. Spence is listed as the author. The title of the book is Stalking the Great Horror, The Lost Writings of James Shelby Downard, just published February 6, 2023. And he's written an article about that, which I read, uh, an article about Downard. And the title of that one is The Limbo of Lost Memories, Searching for James Shelby Downard, just re uh, uh, edited and added to it this month. But he's also written many other books. I've quoted his book. Even before I talked to him, I quoted his another excellent book, which I recommend. Secret Agent 666, Oster Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult. And in that, he proved definitively that Crowley was working as an asset of British intel, according to the paperwork, with the full knowledge of the American government uh, in World War I in New York City. And some of his other books are Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley. And he's also done courses since we talked last. He's added an additional course, but his other two courses, which you can see on Amazon and probably elsewhere, are The Real History of Secret Societies and Crimes of the Century, A Selective History of Infamy. But then just uh, within the last three or four months, he put out Secrets of the Occult, something I'm interested in. And I actually saw him. I've kind of followed some of the podcasts and he did an occult crimes show with somebody else. I forgot who it was, but I was interested in that. But he is listed as an author on this book, Stalking the Great Horror, but this is actually a book by Downard, so it's The Lost Writings of Downard, but he's added, I think, an intro with Adam Gorightly, who I've also talked to, but I'm delighted to have him. So, Richard Spence, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be back on. Awesome. So for people maybe are, who missed our first show, can you kind of talk about your career? I know you're a professor emeritus, history, specialized in Russian intelligence, military history, modern espionage, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust. Can you kind of talk about your career and then what you've been doing since uh, you stopped teaching at university? And how I got into all of this weird stuff. Uh, well, I started out as the kind of, you know, regular academically trained historian. Um, Got my MA and PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara, sometimes known as the University of California Surfing Branch. But that, of course, is a vicious rumor. Uh, now we, I got uh, I, uh, graduate degrees from UC, taught there for a while. They let me hang around. There we are. And, uh, and then eventually in 1986, I ended up at the University of Idaho in the beautiful town, it really is, of Moscow, Idaho. Now, the one which is attached to the Idaho 4 murder case most recently, but really that's kind of unusual for us. And I taught at the University of Idaho for 34 years. Uh, my main academic background is in modern Russian and Eastern European history, more broadly European, especially diplomatic military history. And um, went through a sort of progression, as a lot of people do, you know, and better part of four decades of an academic career, you, you have to change things up because, well, I mean, in my case, I'll get bored if I stick with something too long. So people often ask me, well, how did you go from an interest in something like the Russian Revolution and then into espionage? And how did you end up interested in, in the occult or in some guy like James Shelby Downer? And my best the best explanation I can give for that is that one thing leads you to another. You 
you find out the intersection between these things. So for instance, in the case of Aleister Crowley, one of the things that that was a result of that book and my interest in him was of the my awareness of the intersection between intelligence activities and the occult, which at first doesn't really seem to make much sense. But once you begin to understand it, once you begin to put the pieces together, it does. It makes a <laughs> quite a bit of sense. And uh, anybody who would want to go more into that might want to really look at Secret Agent 666 and see how that story goes there. But, but Crowley is not unique. Crowley is not the only guy who was ostensibly an occultist who then became and involved in intelligence activities. No, no, no. He's he's only part of a a general, I think, uh, pattern that you tend to find. So yeah, one thing led me to another. Um, fear of boredom propelled me. Uh, interest, you know. Uh, I like solving puzzles. I suppose that's what you know. Give me a mystery. And that's one of the things that I'll try to plunge into. And Downard is, is a case like this. But before I go any further, though, I might try to, you know, just for people out there to, to explain my relationship with the, the book that you have up there, Stalking the Great Horror, The Lost Writings of James Shelby Downard and how that fits in. Um, the book consists of more largely of his autobiographical writings that had not up to this point been Published. I don't know the whole backstory as to how Adam go rightly got a hold of them, but but Adam did I think that the heavy lifting in this case. He got a hold of those writings. He did a good deal of the editing. He really helped bring this to print. Uh, he then contributes a a forward to it, and then I have I think an afterward, which is which is the article I sent you, the limbo of lost memories. So the limbo of lost memories is basically my attempt to really discover who this person was because one of the questions that had long, I suppose, been floating around among those, those, uh, those types who were interested in Doubter was whether he was a real person at all. And, and I, that was a legitimate question. I mean, you could ask that because, well, not only were some of the things he said really sort of out there, but it was difficult to find a, a good deal of material on him. Uh, he, he, led a, his, his, he was constantly traveling around. This is one of the things that I found is that he's going back and forth across the country. He'll live in Arizona, then he'll live in Florida, then he'll be in California, then he'll go back to Arizona. And then, you know, he's in Oakland, you know, he's, he's originally from Oklahoma and then spreads out in both directions, dies in, in Memphis, in, in Tennessee, which is where he's buried because his family would relocate there. So he's all over the place. So, uh, but once you began looking, okay, one of the things that I had learned in my previous forays into research, especially hunting down people who very often didn't want to be found or who had very different identities, is that it's pretty difficult for people to go through life, especially in a country like America in the 20th century, without leaving some kind of paper trail. You can minimize it, you can obscure it, but there's almost always something which is there. And so in Downard's case, that's what I really began with. It was an effort to try to figure out whether this was a real guy or not. And yeah, 
Right, and you like went in and did actual did the research and found out his family, his grandparents too, right? So he comes from a line of uh, people from, I think, Pennsylvania, right? Well, I think they start. They come from Penn. You know, you can see this sort of constant Western migration. It's one of the things you really do find a lot if you look at any kind. You know, if you if you do your own genealogy, for instance, you'll often find that people tend to start in the East and move to, towards the West. That's the most common sort of movement pattern you'll find. And in his case, his his family pretty much from, was from Ohio, and. Uh, his his father, one of the things that can get kind of complicated is that he's actually the guy we're talking about here. This James Shelby Downard was James Shelby Downard Jr. His father is James Shelby Downard Sr. So occasionally you, you have to pay attention to which James Shelby Downard they're talking about. And, and then there are also sort of shifting names that take place. Um, even though both of them are James Shelby Downard in both his and his father's case, uh, in, in most of their personal affairs, they seem to have been most commonly been known as Shelby to other people. So, but then if you look in press accounts and elsewhere, there'll often be James S. Downard. Sometimes they'll simply be that way. So one of the things you often have to do is look under different variations of a person's name. But... Uh, Basically, once I started looking, once I knew who to look for, uh, he was all over the place. It wasn't really that hard to find at all. He left a lot of paper trail behind him. So did his father. And, and he came from kind of like uh, his dad was an esotericist, at least briefly, right? Or the grandfather. I can't remember which one. But also kind of a lot of Freemasonry and clan. You know, well, there's, uh, a lot of, there's always there's more stuff going on here than you know, you can shake a stick at. There's a lot of things in, in terms of the family. His father early on, um, his father attended the University of Michigan for a while, didn't graduate, but eventually became a, a kind of uh, asphalt engineer. He, he became involved in, in, the, in methods to produce asphalt and to pave streets. There you go, streets and highways. And so his father eventually held a number of patents in terms of how to prepare asphalt, amiocyte, sometimes it's called. It was it's the type of stuff you find in your roads and highways, you know, all that sticky black stuff that covers the nation's highway network. And that's how his father made money. Uh, that's what his whole livelihood was, was connected to. Early on, his father was interested in things like Rosicrucianism and theosophy. So were lots of other people. That also is not. I mean, if you start looking at all the people who've you know ever gone to a séance or played around with a Ouija board or ran across Theosophy, that's a very large portion, uh, particularly in the early 20th century in the U.S. Of, of the adult population. So it's it's not that rare to find it. But you never know what kind of maybe lingering influence that had. Uh, Eventually, the family ends up in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Um, that's where the father's business was established. That's pretty much where, you know, Shelby Jr. and his older sister grew up. Uh, the family then later relocated to, relocated to Texas. And then in the late 1920s, they leave Texas and Oklahoma and they go to uh, Fort Thomas, Kentucky, 
and, and Fort Thomas, Kentucky is just right across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. So they almost sort of go full circle back to the family sort of Ohio roots. But there's a lot of there are strange things that coincide with it. When they when they show up in Ohio, uh, the father, James Shelby Downer Sr., is listed publicly under a different name. For a period of time, he becomes Donald Downard. And I have no idea why. There's no explanation for that. It's just a very brief period of time. There's also in that period, um, just about the time that James Shelby Downard Jr. is of college age, that he briefly goes by the name of Rex for some reason. I never see that before. I never see it afterwards. And it also, it can almost give you the impression that for some period of time, the family not only changed its location, they sort of altered their identities. Why do you do that? Well, the most common reason you do that is you're trying to hide. You're trying to obscure your presence from, from someone else. My suspicion, and you know, is you have to remember he a very clear line between facts, which are kind of few and far between, and then the supposition or the narrative you can try to create to explain those facts. So the fact is that the Downards as a family move from the Texas, Oklahoma area to just outside of Cincinnati and they go through, the father and son seem to go through this period of playing around with other names. So that's something that's recorded, you know, that they do, they're mentioned by those names. So what does that mean? Well, I said that the, the, the suggestion, not the fact, but the suggestion is that they're trying to obscure their location and their presence there for a while. And that presumably would be because they didn't want someone to know where they were or to find them. So one of the things, if you kind of backtrack a little bit and you go back and if you look particularly at, and not many people have, if you look at Oklahoma state politics in the 1920s, you will find that relative to at least other states in the area, it's fairly chaotic. You know, think of Oklahoma as being a center of political intrigue and chaos, but You've got at least two governors in that period who are impeached. Um, they're all from the same party, I might add. It's, it's, it's not like Republicans versus Democrats. The whole state machine was in the hands of the Democratic Party. So it's, it's cliques of different Oklahoma Democrats feuding with other ones. But embedded with that are two things. One of them has a lot to do with highway policy. Uh, you can find in this the sort of roots of what would eventually become... Uh, Route 66 and the and the American highway system. And there was a lot of money, you know, huge amounts of public money appropriated to build roads and highways. And anytime you have huge amounts of public money being appropriated, when you get things built, you also have a lot of graft, which is built into it. There's always that lurking around. But also involved in this uh, was the, the Ku Klux Klan. That's there as well. And, and Freemasonry. And I don't want to shock anybody too much, but politics and Freemasonry and the Klan in this whole sort of Oklahoma political intrigue of the 20s is tied together. And if you look at Downard's, we're talking about Downard Jr. here, if you're looking at his writings, 
one of his enemies, the people who are often seem to be tormenting, the people he argues are always out to get him in his, his paranoid view, are Masons and Ku Kluxers, or you know, Masonic Ku Kluxers, which he combines together. And that's where my hunch, more than that, my hunch is that in some way his father, through his business connections, through his connections to the state highway programs in Texas and Oklahoma, and to the whole sort of political and and financial appropriations for all of this ran afoul of somebody, and that's why they moved back east and tried to hide out for a while, apparently without too much success. And that may have been the beginning, I think, in some ways of, you know, I, I think one of the things your, your title for this program is, uh, you know, that, that Downard is an eccentric American, you know, paranoid. And oh. all I can say is that I hope he's a paranoid <laughs> because I, mean, that's, I would, I would really rather prefer that it would make it easier to sleep at nights. If you assume that he's simply a paranoid and that these are delusions he's having, because if they're not, then we live in a much weirder world than the weird one we already live in. <laughs> but Masonic Klansers or Waplaxers or whatever he said, isn't yeah. far from the truth. If you look at Albert Pike, the founder of the Klan was a is a high Mason too, so I, it, the overlap it, it, is real. I think the overlap and in twenties Oklahoma, this whole road building thing tied up with the Klan and with the Democratic Party and with the I'm not picking on the Democratic Party, but that's what they were. You're all members of that. Guess what the name of the association that would later the Highway Association formed in Oklahoma in this period that would in many ways be the sort of root of Route 66. It was the Albert Pike Highway Memorial Highway Association. You can't make it up. It's unbelievable. No. Why, of all the people you could name that after, which again shows their, the sort of, I suppose, Masonic influence, which is, which is involved. So James Shelby Downer was a real guy. And what he describes... Uh, his prior to this latest version, Stalking the Great Whore, which, by the way, is a reference to his ex-wife, uh, who was a very interesting woman in her own right, another very real person, is that uh, there's already been published by Farrell House some years back, the kind of original volume of his autobiography, which is called The Carnivals of Life and Death. And that was one of those books, I, I think in, in Limbo of Lost Memories, I refer to it as one of the few books that I've ever read that I would periodically just literally, and I mean this, throw against the wall in frustration because of what appeared to be the completely absurd, unbelievable stories that he was telling in this. And it's, um, it's for anyone who hasn't read it, it's, it's this kind of, nightmare childhood of where it's essentially this guy from about the age of five or six who's essentially describing this whole series of elaborate almost sort of perverse keystone cops efforts to try to kill him as some sort of masonic sacrifice and that he's actually being set up for this by his mother 
I mean, in the in the in his autobiography, it oddly never seems to dawn on him that it's his mom who's constantly trying to get him killed. But as the reader, you kind of realize this. But just you know, I I can't possibly describe it. It's very sort of of set piece, bizarre, freakish circumstances. Things that often seem to be far more elaborate. You know, if you simply wanted to kill a kid, there would be a lot easier ways to do it than building a house of horrors and luring them inside. Or, you know, you've got clowns eaten by snakes, all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I can't possibly describe. So, on the one hand, he seems to be spinning this tale that is just completely unbelievable. Yet, as I discovered, as you went through it, where he says he was, he was. The people he mentions are almost without exception, real people. They actually existed. So you've got this interesting case of someone who is, well, it comes out of this question. It's, it's not often, I found this in other cases, not just his. There's not necessarily this sort of clear line between what you can call sanity and insanity. That is, for a person is delusional to the extent that they're simply describing people and things that never existed, pure figments of their imagination. Instead, the question with someone like Downard, and you can apply this in other things, is not whether they're crazy or not crazy, but how crazy are they? I mean, it's... Or are they I mean, so, to, so me, yeah, to me, looking at Downard, he's such a precursor to kind of modern kind of paranoid culture like he's really one of the early ones maybe uh i don't know who else it would be but like he but the, also the way that he sees these things very vivid very paranoid very aware but also he's he's adjacent to such interesting currents all the time witches and masons and clansmen and um also kind of alternate uh, medical things and alternate yes spiritual views like he he really has it all kind of mixed together in his life and his worldview would you agree with that well one of the things that i didn't even realize until you know fairly recently this is this it's just this kind of ongoing process of revelation because you find one thing and then you find others is that downard himself was a kind of mad scientist um by the uh before and during World War II. So during World War II, he's in the military, he's in the army, and, and he's seemingly in the in the medical corps. Uh, he also undergoes a whole period of training at a, at a fairly well-known and well-respected, uh, the Gradwall Institute of Medical Technology in St. Louis. And he was apparently a student there, but then also lists himself as an employee and the Gradwall, Dr. Gradwall, can't remember his first name, but the Gradwall Institute of Medical Technology is also one of the founding institutions of modern forensics. Gradwall, G-R-A-D-W-O-H-L, is often considered to be the father of modern forensic science. So Downard had some interesting acquaintances, and Gradwall was only, only one of them. But he's involved in, in military medicine during the war, uh, but then at some point towards the end of the war, he's, he's, he's in the army and then he's out of the army. He's assigned to Pensacola Naval Base for a while to a hospital there. So Downard has some real 
background in medicine and medical technology and in medical forensics. He's not uneducated in, in those areas. I don't know how thoroughly educated he is, but he has some real background in it and was employed in it. So after the war, in fact, right after the war ends in, in 1945, um, he's recently gotten a divorce from his wife in Florida. And then he shows up in Oklahoma City. He's back in Oklahoma. And he joins a thing called the Classen Medical Clinic, which is a private hospital that basically yeah. treats alcoholism and drug addiction. That's it. They're, that's, they're a kind of rehab before that. So they, they have, you know, if you have a problem with alcohol, you can come there. But then they've also branched out into something else. Keep in mind, this is right after the war. So one of the other things they treat is what is called uh, combat fatigue. You know, it's what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder because there are a lot of guys coming back from Europe and the Pacific with all kinds of emotional and mental problems. And this 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 clinic was going to was going to treat them. They treated those with various techniques. Drugs were involved, but but Downard gets hired by this class and clinic as the head of its psychosomatic department. I didn't know they had such things. And also in the advertisements for this, this is, you know, it's amazing the things you find in newspapers. And what I found were the newspapers that said the clinic had where they're, where they're saying, oh, we're announcing a new doctor has joined us. And it's Dr. James S. Downard, N.D., not M.D., not Mother David, but N.D. And I'd, I'd never seen that before. What's an N.D.? Well, it turns out N.D. is the abbreviation for Doctor of Naturopathy. And so one of the other things he could claim to be was a naturopathic physician. That covers a lot of things, everything from homeopathy, even chiropractic falls into that. Uh, Downard is never a chiropractor himself, but he will later go into business, into a joint medical practice with a chiropractor in Alabama. Uh, you tend to find that, that Downard, not too surprisingly, is extremely suspicious of doctors and the standard medical establishment and is uh, very interested and supportive of alternative medicine. And then he ends up in Phoenix, Arizona, teams up with a guy in the Air Force. They develop a machine which is called the ultrasound. What's all of that about? Well, that, that creates ultrasonic waves, you know, these very sort of, of high-frequency waves, uh, which they then are, are applying to doing everything from mixing paint, okay, that's one of them, to causing plants to grow more proficiently. And then they also think they've come up with this whole idea of... Uh, of coming up with a superior rocket fuel. Now, I don't know how much is there to that. Are these guys nuts? Can, does this thing actually work? Uh, what, it, what it sounds like to me are these things I've run across before that are often referred to as doodle bugs. And the type of things that, you know, it's the sort of con where someone says, I've got this fabulous machine that can find gold or it can locate oil or knows where uranium is. And you take it out here and the lights beep and, oh, that must be it. There must be oil underneath it. That's almost always a con. I'm not sure that's, I think Downer in his own way sort of believed in this machine. 
But he does some interesting things with his discovery. He thinks he has things that are of value to the military. So he sends his notes to the Air Force. And the Air Force acknowledges that they've received this and they send them off. Where do they send them? You know, it's, it's, it's 19, I think when I was about 1947. Where does the Air Force send the supposed notes from Downer's discovery? They send it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, you know, that place that's supposed to be the recipient of all those dead aliens and crash saucers. But it gets lost. <laughs> they go, oops, thanks for sending us all your research notes, but somehow they got lost. Well, maybe they got lost. Maybe they didn't get lost. Not long after that, Downer then ends up, um, next place you encounter him is trying to escape from the Arizona State Mental Hospital. <laughs> or apparently, somehow, he's ended up there. And um, that was just one of these things. So it, it actually ends up, if you ever think, well, did this guy ever end up in a mental institution? Yeah, at least twice. Okay, Once uh, around 1950 in Arizona, Apparently not for a terribly long period of time. Then later in the late 50s and early 60s for a much longer period of time at the Bolivar State Hospital in, um, in Tennessee. So he's, he's apparently there for, for quite a while. Uh, it's never clear, you know, you can't, you know, never try to ask public mental institutions for the case histories of, you know, you can't get that. Those are all... <laughs> appropriately. You can determine that they were there. You can't really determine why they were there or what, what treatment that they what they received. So yes, he did have stints in a mental institution. Um, and uh, What's interesting is that he's also kind of at the forefront of this whole electronic control of the mind. Like right around kind of MK Ultra early 50s, he's talking about electronic control. He has cybernetics, biotelemetry. Like he's almost kind of like in the Scientology era or something like that. Like it's a really well, interesting aspect to his personality. Yeah. The thing is, this does happen in, in the Scientology era. You know, you, you've got, you know, by the middle of the 1950s, you can pretty much track his movements up until about 1955. And it's in 1954 and 1955 that he again is involved in, he's involved in this joint practice with a chiropractor in Montgomery, Alabama. Again, these guys have ads in newspapers. Downard is writing letters to the local newspaper praising chiropractic, attacking the medical establishment. Uh, he's still using his ultrasonic device to treat patients in some way. Uh, oh, he, he also is an expert in electroencephalography, you know, which is sort of attaching little electrodes to people's heads and putting electrical currents through their brains. This was the way that he was going to treat post-traumatic stress disorder in Oklahoma a decade before. So he's been at this for some, like I said, he's a kind of mad scientist or, you know, he's, he's, he's a doctorism, but on, on the fringes of these things. But then after 1955, he just vanishes until around 1970, where he pops up again in Florida. He seems, he seems to be constantly drawn back to St. Petersburg, Florida, like a moth to a flame or something. That's also where his marriage broke up, and I think that may be, which is a thing which he believes that his wife, who is 
originally a woman born Mary Annette Parton around Memphis, Tennessee, interestingly enough. He married her in Texas in the late 1930s. Eventually, you know, find their whole marriage license, uh, date of their marriage, civil ceremony. Uh, she stays with him. They divorce in the summer of 1945 in Florida. She divorces him. And there are some suggestions that prior to that, in the 10 years or so that they were married, that there had been different separations. He seems to be in places where there, there are different places for extended periods of time. But he's, she's the woman that he later dubs the great whore. And he basically argues that she was, you know, that she became this kind of, you know, project monarch program sex slave by the Ku Kluxing Masons and FBI, whoever was involved in this. And, and that they used, you know, they, they put wires and implants in her and she was the, the centerpiece in these, these, these orgies and sex magic rites. Uh, this is another thing he talks constantly about. His wife was this kind of high priestess in these, these uh, frankly, occult sex magic rites that were being held. And, and she went on to marry. She married another interesting guy. So Downard writes King Kill 33, but her second husband was really fascinating too, right? Like, I mean. Well, she, she later shows up. She goes to these, she divorces Downard and she eventually becomes, she drops the marry part and she drops the Annette, and she just becomes Anne. And she later marries a man by the name of Alan Whitwer. She, she becomes Anne Whitwer. Moves to California. He becomes the manager in the 1950s of the Del Charo Hotel near San Diego. And Del Charo Hotel, which most people have never heard of before, was the, the summer, the kind of summer residence of J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson. Every summer they came out, they got a little cabin, a little cabana, and then they played the horses at the nearby racetracks. There were also mafia figures that hung out there and also important, uh, you know, a lot of big Texas oil men, uh, Sid Richardson, Clint Murchison uh, was there. Clint Murchison actually apparently owned the place and then hired Whitwer to manage it. So Alan Whitwer himself, you know, uh, became a, a kind of JFK conspiracy theorist when he came to the conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that the whole assassination had been plotted right under his nose at the Del Charo Hotel. And that this was effectively what it was at Hoover and Clint Murchison and others and Carlos Marcello were, 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 were actually plotting there. Now, I mean, was that true or was he experiencing his own kind of delusions? I don't know, but that's what he thought. So the interesting thing about Mary Ann Parton, AKA Ann Whitwer, is that she is initially married to James Shelby Downard, who will write his own sort of synchro mystic interpretation of the assassination, King Kill 33, and then marry another guy, Alan Whitwer, who will come to believe that the assassination was actually plotted while he and his wife were managing the hotel. What are the chances of that? You know? Um, Very small. Infinitesimal. Uh, you read Tobias Torgerson again asks how one woman managed to marry two different men who both went on to be JFK conspiracy theorists. It's really incredible. Well, you know, Downard could explain that to you. He goes, that's just synchromysticism for you. That's the way these things work. 
know, there, there are no coincidences. And, you know, I, 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 I just say that it's, it's very odd, isn't it? Right? It's, it's one of those things that, it's one of those things, it goes back to this thing about not whether or not Downard could be classified as delusional or to simplify it as to what degree he was crazy. But again, to what degree he was crazy. And it's, it's one of those things in terms of, yeah, he's, he's telling the truth about certain things. I mean, in terms of where he was and who he knew, he's quite accurate with those details. So he's not so delusional that his head is simply spinning all the time and he doesn't know who he was and he's, and he's fantasizing about people. He may be fantasizing about what he thinks these people are doing or where he was or anything else. He may be imagining that, but where's the line? See, this is the interesting part. Where is the line between where something which is real and factual and solid drifts over into insanity, where it drifts over into the area of pure delusion? And that's one of the things you can't find. There is no line. It's very unnerving to like look at that, but it's also, I think, very current thing. Like I've talked to people online. Like you wonder how close they are to Downer, really, honestly. Like how, and there's a lot yeah. of things. You QAnon, like that's supposed to be based in reality, but some of those people are real believer believers. Adrenochrome and all that stuff. Not a lot of, not a lot of evidence, you know. But yeah, there's you know, flat Earth. I hope I want you know flat Earth. Okay, flat Earth. <laughs> Rich, Rick, some of the most dis uh, really I've had talked about disturbing subjects, but really some of the most disturbing interviews I've had in flat earthers because they don't believe in anything. I talked to one guy. He couldn't even confirm that China or India existed. So he like for him, the entire external reality was just quite not only questioned, but discarded. It was discarded. It was unbelievable. The flat earthers, man, really scared me. Yeah, but the but, thing uh, is, I, I bet on other topics you could sit and have a perfectly rational conversation with those people. I think, and, and it's it's a it, it, I can't remember who came up with the term, but it's selective madness. Right? That that in fact, even if you look at people who are often uh, might be considered to be severely or generally mentally ill, yeah, they're they're capable of having a conversation. You can talk to them about the, you know, the price of cream corn or whatever you want to come up with. And, and it, it, you wouldn't even, it's not often until, well, Winston Churchill always had a quote about something. So we'll throw in Winston Churchill. Churchill once said that everyone is a little mad about something. Meaning that if you eventually knew a person long enough or well enough, you, if you got onto certain topics, you know, you get off into this particular topic and that's where logic and reason seems to completely depart from it. Perfectly rational up until you get to the point, I don't know, of talking about the flat earth and then you're talking to a crazy person or you think, or they think they're talking to a crazy person. One of the interesting things about Downward is he really was connected to other people who were kind of in on fringe, like international conspiracy, like visiting. I think you said he met Trotsky. He was in uh, written communication with Henry Wallace. A lot of people might know him. He was a known theosophist, like a true believer theosophist, actually. Uh, Vice President of the United States, uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Commerce at one time. You know, but he was part of you know FBI's entourage. 
Uh, Wallace is the guy who basically got uh, pushed out of the vice presidency, so Huey, so rather, so Harry Truman could get shoehorned in. Uh, Wallace in 1948 would mount his own sort of separate presidential campaign, uh, backed by the Soviets, by the way. Who thought that was a great? I mean, it was. Um, there were various. Uh, you know, that, that's one of the things that sort of espionage tends to to swim around this in in a particular way. But uh, yeah, Henry Wallace was. That was another guy that um, Downard sent his research to about ultrasonics, because he sent it to Henry Wallace, and. Wallace, interesting enough, actually forward. He is never he in in Wallace's paper. You can find Downard's letter. So yes, Downard actually wrote to Henry Wallace. It's not alleged. He wrote to him. The letter is there. It's in the it's in Wallace's papers in the Henry Wallace collection and the University of Iowa Library. But then there's a notation on that letter, which is it has the name of Boris Pregel. P-R-E-G-E-L. So if you're ever doing research of that kind, you get a hold of a letter and you find any kind of little notations or a name you've never seen before, you should immediately try to figure out who that person was because Wallace wrote that name on that letter for a reason. So whether Wallace then forwarded all of, of Downard's notes on to Pregel, the interesting thing is who was Boris Pregel? Boris Pregel and his brother Alexander, they were, they had been born in Russia early on, they're from Russian Jewish background, immigrated to the U.S. like millions of others. They were the main entrepreneurs of radium and uranium in the late 40s. In fact, you know, the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb project, you know who they bought their enriched uranium from? The Pregel brothers. They supplied the Manhattan Project, with all of their radioactive materials. In fact, they were about one of the few places in the U.S. that you could get it. So the probable reason for that is that what Downard wrote to Wallace about, Wallace was very interested in agriculture. Uh, that, that was essentially his background. His dad was uh, head of the ag, too, right? Wasn't he? Yeah. And so Wallace had been actually experimenting with exposing plants to radioactive materials to see whether that could increase growth and yield. Remember, this is the, you know, late 40s, you know, people weren't too sure, you know, what the effect of that would be. So he was doing some experiments with that, and he was probably getting those radioactive materials from the Pregels. That's about the only place. So that's, that sort of explains his connection with them. And Downard had written to him arguing that ultrasonics, that sound waves, can also affect plants and affect their growth and increase yields. That, that's why Downard, remember Downard in this case isn't crazy. He was sending his research to someone in the U.S. government who he knew was interested in agriculture and increasing plant yields. And here's my theory as to how to do that. So his connections are... Uh, you know, for someone who you might assume was just this complete madman who's driving in an Airstream trailer all across the country, uh, you know, chasing some ex-wife who he thinks is some sort of synchro mystic sacred whore, um, 
Well, there's more to it than that. He actually does have, you know, again, he, he has training in, in medicine. He has, he has a background in particularly in medical technology. He can claim to have, have made these discoveries or in ultrasonics was not, it's, it's a real thing. Whether his machine worked, I don't know, but he's not making up the whole idea. So I guess the question can often be, well, why is Downard important or is there any kind of significance? Well, I say it really tends to fall into two areas. One, he is very clearly a kind of precursor to the whole realm that we now call conspiracy theory. Because Downard's whole world, this sort of nightmare world in which he lives or purports to live, is one which is completely controlled and manipulated by conspiracies at every angle. And that's become an idea which has become, which has made its way much more into the mainstream. And I think one of the things that he represents is that that kind of thinking isn't something new. It's not created by the internet. Now, Downard was talking about the same sorts of things uh, really back into the late 1940s and, and 1950s. And the other thing I think it touches upon is this, is this line between really sort of sanity and madness and reality in irreality. It, it's the, or, or, or reality and fantasy, the way those two things constantly sort of combine uh, and it's a, um, there's, it goes off into a kind of other tangent. There's, there's a, there's a particular case of a, of a, of a disappearance that I've been able to look into. It has nothing to do with Downard, but there's a, a professor, actually a professor of Russian history in 1969 vanished in Boulder, Colorado, a guy by the name of Thomas Riha. And it's still this very mysterious case because he just was never seen again. But the center of this is a woman that he was in various ways involved in. The sort of femme fatale of the case was this woman who was best known as Galia Tannenbaum. But, you know, I'll suffice to say that wasn't her real name, and she had lots of other ones. But the thing about Tannenbaum is that she is, if the term pathological liar barely covers what it is she was, she's, she's constantly lies. She's always inventing identities, new names for herself. But as some of the psychiatrists who interviewed her put it, is that in talking with her, you you simply never, there is, you simply never know whether she's telling you the truth or she's lying. There's There's no segue between one or the other. And thus, it was both impossible to take anything she said at face value, but neither could you entirely dismiss it. And the problem was, this was the woman who was probably the only person on earth who actually knew what happened to this guy. She might have killed him. She might not have. You just really don't know. And it's the kind of, and, and, and Downer to me is something like that. It's, in, much of what he's dealing with must be fantasy because he's simply describing circumstances that I, I can't believe could ever exist. But he's, populating this whole sort of fantasy world with real people, real places, real events, and part of what he is talking about is real. So 
you mentioned earlier that in, in these in these lost writings, he has an encounter with Trotsky. You know, Trotsky sort of I have a long abiding interest in that, which goes back, of course, to the Russian Revolution. And it was really interesting because I had prior to this just been working, in fact, for the for the One Dreamer Great Courses series, series Crimes of the Century. There's a whole episode in there about Trotsky's assassination in 1940. So I just been going through all of the series of the background about Trotsky's arrival in Mexico and his living in Mexico City and all the events leading up to his assassination. So here's Downard, who comes along and suddenly puts himself in the middle of this. Who's telling me, yeah, it's around 1937. I'm in Mexico City and I'm invited to meet with Trotsky. And, and then it goes into uh, to have like, you know, zap machines in the wall. Um, and again, these kind of Downard likes in creating these kind of Rube Goldberg devices. I don't know if that's too dated of a, of a reference. I remember Rube Goldberg. I've read Mad Magazine, so I remember yeah. Rube Goldberg, but probably the younger generation. There were fun diagrams of like marbles going through six steps, rat trap, drawbridge, and, you know, coming out the other side. Very, very complicated machines that would go through all of these different, these different, you know, uh, a kind of engineer's nightmare as to how to accomplish something, but it would kind of work. And so Downard's tales often have these kind of Rube Goldberg machines, these, these very sort of complicated death-dealing devices or traps that are often being set. And, but, so I've never seen anything to suggest that Trotsky had a doorway wired up with a zapper with electrocute people when they came through. On the other hand, I couldn't say that he didn't have one. It wasn't like there weren't people trying to kill him. Yeah, so he was very aware, right? He was aware the whole time Stalin was after him. Right? Oh, he knew it, yes. I mean, he doesn't, actually, he didn't take it seriously enough. Trotsky's problem was that he always thought, um, Trotsky's one of those people who was always convinced he was the smartest guy in the room, which very often he was. But... Uh, he also was kind of blind to someone who was outsmarting him. He couldn't see quite beyond the, the sort of barrier of his own, you know, arrogance to some extent. Uh, Trotsky was the opinion was that if anybody came to try to assassinate him, he would just engage them in an intellectual conversation and talk him out of it. That didn't work in the end. But that, right, that wasn't was it like one of his friends, his new boyfriend or something, was a spy. Was it was. It was one of the women who was working, or was connected with his whole sort of entourage. And uh, yes, it was a guy who was posing as her boyfriend, but was a Soviet agent, and was simply maneuvering him into a situation of trust, and to get himself alone with Trotsky, which is what he eventually did. But first of all, you have you 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 make friends with someone who's close to your target, and then through them you gain the trust of your target. And then you get along with them and you kill them. That is eventually what. Yeah, it was like an ice pipe. Right, really. Uh, ice axe. Yeah. Okay. Really. Up close and personal. Yeah. Um, and uh, even then he almost bungled it. But never. So I see, that was the, was the strange story is that, well, on the one hand, it appears to have all of these kind of ludicrous elements to it. It, it kind of fits the circumstance. Trotsky was being hunted. He was very concerned about people making attempts on his life. Uh, and so those the kind of precautions that, that Downer describes 
although they seem to be kind of outlandish, they're just a kind of, they're almost a kind of cartoonish variation on something that would actually exist. So it, it leaves, again leaves you in this, this kind of, uh, this limbo of not knowing what, how far should you actually believe this? I mean, it's... But, and, but and, Trotsky's event would probably feed into, I'm speculating here, but it would feed into downwards, downwards kind of paranoia of secret forces influencing current events. I mean, it is remarkable to think that Trotsky 20 years before was an essential figure of overthrowing the entire Soros system and then ends up, you know, getting having to run for his life in Russia. Like, he was really... I think you could argue he was the critical figure, maybe, because he ran the Red Army, right? And then he, he, gets... did, he was involved in creating the Red Army. Um, but here again, you could look at it. What you can say that Trotsky was was heavily involved in, in the organization of you know the October Revolution, and then so what was he involved in? He was involved in a conspiracy. Because a, a point I would always make is that you never have revolutions without conspiracy. That is an absolute necessity for it because, you know, if you're trying to overthrow the government and you're not conspiring, you'll be dead before lunch. Okay. I mean, generally the forces that be don't take too kindly to people trying to overthrow them. So uh, they'll do something, you know, they'll, they'll eliminate you. So you must conspire. Uh, and then, of course, you know, living in, in Mexico, Trotsky himself is conspiring against Stalin and Stalin is conspiring against him. So it's almost it's this perfect. It is so it's to me downers. This is this kind of window in into this whole realm again, where where delusion and reality seem to overlap. And I, you know, I don't know. I think reality is often more real than we give it credit for. Yeah, no, it's, it's a interesting. It's a perplexing question. Like, how, like, where is that at in the whole thing of truth, madness, secret? Because there are conspiracies. There are people, uh, or you know, not smaller groups trying to influence things for their own benefit. Whether it's happening well, in Oklahoma. Yeah, or well, sometimes it's it's treated in the way is that cons well, one, you get the view that well, conspiracies don't exist. Okay, all all conspiracies are just you know imagined because because people just don't do things like that. Uh, in that case, I just wonder, you know, what rock have you, you've lived under your entire right. life? Read some history. It's all over the place. You know, Caesar, Ways all kinds of things. Yeah, that's just the way the world works. And and the idea, because all it comes down to, to, to sort of give a definition to it, is that a conspiracy, you know, conspiracy, to breathe together, is this is my adjusted definition but i'll simply say it's two or more people working together in secret to achieve a common end doesn't even mean that end has to be criminal or illegal or evil it just means that they are working together secretly sort of within the inside group to achieve their own particular end so once you have that definition of conspiracy, look around and see how many things fit that. Right. Business, the world is very conspiratorial. I mean, politics, obviously, but business very much. Yeah. Works that way. So that's, Big that's pharma, really, whatever. No, it's, it's not unusual at all. So it's, 
it's not as if you know James Shelby Dowd is sort of inventing conspiracy. It's just the ones that he comes up with are just so damn bizarre. That's yeah. that's the, the he had a bizarre life. Like his, it was like a, an odyssey of like just strange after strange after strange after strange. I mean, I think he's best, at least for me, he was best known for King Kill Thirty Three. Do you know like when he put that together? Like, was he in a mental institution when he wrote that? But I think that that's his most influential work. Again, between 55 and 1970, at least in the records I've seen, he's difficult to trace. Now, eventually, maybe, you know, when eventually the 1960 census comes out, then you can, you can get census information, by the way, is often is very, very useful because it will give you an idea as to where people are at the time, usually where they had been some years before. It'll give you details about what, what they list their occupation, where they live, who lives next door to them, all kinds of stuff. And all of those details can be important. I tend to think he seems to be in what was called Western State Mental Hospital or Bolivar Hospital in, in Bolivar, Tennessee, Best I can place, he's, he's certainly there from you know one side or another from around 1960. His mother dies in 1966, and my suspicion—it's only that—is that his mother may have had something to do with actually committing him, because Bolivar is in Tennessee. The mother and his sister, Mary's sister, were living. They're both quite socially prominent. We're living in Memphis at the time. So that would be why he would be committed to a Tennessee mental hospital. And it may have been that once his mother died, that uh, that's when he got out. And then he comes back. He's around St. Petersburg, living in his trailer in the early 70s. That seems to be where he runs into people like William Grimstead, um, and others who are there. He also becomes a frequent, uh, there's a there's a bookstore, and I think it's still in St. Petersburg, Tampa. I think it's Haslam's Bookstore. And so apparently Downard was a regular, you know, he's one of those people who would hang out at the bookstore all the time and talk to people. It's where people would meet. He's also, interestingly enough, this is, I've never, I haven't seen this confirmed, but it has been mentioned by more than one person that someone else in the same period who frequented Haslam's bookstore and is supposed to have met Downard was Jack Kerouac. Wow, interesting. And, you know, the, the beat writer. And if you look into Kerouac's background, you find that he went through this whole sort of political, psychological permutation in those years, uh, maybe influenced by his alcoholism, maybe not. But it wouldn't surprise me in the least that they'd met each other. And um, I think it's more likely to be true than not, but let's say that's just one of those things which is rumored, not a fact. But it's in that time that that Downard runs into William Grimstead, runs into a couple of people called the Saunders Brothers, one of which is connected to the American Nazi Party. I mean, this is frankly where Downard runs into a bunch of Nazis. So, and that's true for, you know, I don't know whether William Grimstead would consider himself a Nazi, but, he's, he's, you know, he's kind of somewhere in the neighborhood. Uh, people who would have what might be considered to be, how will we describe them today, extremist right-wing anti-Semitic views. 
Now, by the way, in early in Downard's earlier writing, he has really some fairly nasty, scurrilous things to say about everybody, but pretty much about everybody. Um, his prejudices seem to be much protracted against, you know, white Masonic Ku Kluxers than anyone else. But to be fair, he's he spreads the ethnic slurs around pretty freely. And um, again, not too un unusual for that time. But he, he falls in with what are essentially a group of, of Nazis or people of, of that persuasion. And that's... And, to some degree, under his, under the, their influence, um, and they sort of—I think he finds people who would listen to him. I think that may be part of it. And that's where you get things like Grimstad's the serious rising tapes. The serious rising tapes, which sort of had this ghostly existence, were tape recordings that were supposedly made of Downard speaking on various topics including, oddly enough, aliens and UFOs. Because um, hmm. that has to get in there somehow, doesn't it? Sure. But there are there are questions about those. There are questions about whether the voice on those tapes is actually Downers. And there are some people who argue that if you listen to those tapes, there are actually two different people talking. And that there appears to be what they think is the real Downard, and then there is someone who seems to be imitating him. Because, you know, it can just never be that entirely simple. Um, and and then there are different, you know, are the serious rising tapes, how many of them are there? Uh, are there are, have all of the tapes been released? Uh, that, you know, there's, there's just, you know, one little mystery that tends to compound another one on this. And this comes into part of the whole thing was serious is that Downard, or someone pretending to be Downard, is talking about rituals that take place in an observatory. And the telescope will then be trained upon Sirius, for instance. Or That's the dog star, right? Sirius right. is the dog star. And, and then the light from that will then be brought down and be used to sort of bathe the ritual proceedings. So that the, the, the observatories themselves become the center for these occult operations that has to do with actually channeling the light from the from this star. Wow, and that sounds pretty bizarre, but there's that I run across this thing as another connection to it. And it actually has to do with Palomar Observatory in California. So one of the things that Downard writes or mentions, I think, in the in the, in the newer stuff, is that he's when trailing, you know, his his wife, you know, the now the, the, the Anne Whitworth divorces Whitworth, but she still becomes very socially prominent, uh, moving in fairly affluent circles. Um, you know, she becomes the social director for a country club in San Diego that actually has a yacht called the pagan <laughs> okay i'm not making that up okay so but then 
where, where she's living at one point is not too far from Mount Palomar. And so Downard makes some remarks. Yeah, I drove my trailer out there and I sort of talked with the local occultists. And they said that, yeah, there are these rituals that take place on Mount Palomar. And sure enough, he mentions, you know, trying to drive up there and almost being run off the road by his wife and her entourage. Of, I don't know, Masonic Ku Klux or scientists who are just coming back from some sort of ritual at the observatory. Right, and it's near San Diego. Palomar is uh, uh, southern part of California. San Diego, yeah. And, you know, within not exactly spitting distance, but near in the area. And she actually oh, yeah. did at that time live quite near to Mount Palomar, for what that's worth. But the whole thing about Mount Palomar is that it has occult connections going back to its foundation by what was then Caltech, or the, you know, the Guggenheim lab back in the, in the in the 1930s. And one of the other groups that held rituals on Mount Palomar, if not in the observatory, was Crowley's OTO, the Agape Lodge in Los Angeles. And who's connected to that? Jack Parsons. There he is right there. Oh, there comes Jack. I guess. Okay. Uh, did, I was Downer aware of that? Did Downer know that? I don't know whether I, I don't know who down who these occultists that Downard was talking to, but the thing is, is that local occult groups did see Palomar as this kind of power spot. He wasn't making that up, and that supposedly the Palomar area, the area around the observatory, had been used to stage rituals by the Agape Lodge as far back as the early 1930s, before Parsons ever comes along to the picture. By the way. So, you know, again, he's sort of, yeah, he's not totally off base with this. There's something. Right, close. Close. Yeah, so I was actually talking about the pre-Parsons Agape Lodge yesterday. Uh, there was this uh, lady, Regina Call, and yeah, yeah. there was this other guy. But um, Harry Hay, who's the founder of the gay rights movement, used to play the organ or the piano for their rituals in the 30s. It's really an incredible connection because Harry Hay is very important. Um, the one, you know, if you look at the Lodge for the most part in the 30s, it appears to be nothing. You know, it appears to be a relatively, I mean, the guy, you know, Crowley's sort of representative there, the guy who's running it, uh, you know, Wilfred Smith. I mean, Wilfred Smith works with, he's an accountant for the Southern California Gas Company. All right. That's how an important guy he is. And, you know, you have other people. Regina Call teaches acting in classes at, you know, L.A. City College. They're 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 not even. Sometimes they're described as people being part of the Hollywood set, but they're like on the very fringe of that. Jane so, was involved too. She was uh, she actually was with Crowley at the yeah. Agape. I know at the uh, Temple of Thelema in Sicily, but she's around. So all these early occult characters are all over there. So it's, Until it, appears to be, it appears to be sort of nothing. You know, you could look at it and go, well, these are just a bunch of fringe characters, you know, dressing up in costumes in their house. Okay, so how important can this be? But I'm not sure that's all there was to it. Or put it more than that, I, I think if you're looking at the Agape Lodge as the center of all that is occult in Los Angeles in the 1930s or 40s, you're looking at the wrong thing. And the more interesting question is how Jack Parsons, because Jack Parsons was interested in the occult before he ever discovered Crowley. 
So that, I think, goes back to something sort of inside Caltech itself. I think there was something else there. And my, again, my suspicion, okay, see, I'm not even going to call it a conspiracy theory because it's not. It's just a suspicion. My suspicion is that had something that was brought over from Germany, from Weimar, Germany, by many of the German scientists and expatriates who came over in the early 1930s. Because there are all these people that are fleeing Nazi Germany, and some of them end up at Caltech, and some of them end up in the aeronautics and rocket program. And there's a there is possibly a connection to something that in Germany, which was um, uh, an occult order, which is was a kind of branch off of the original OTO, which was the the Brotherhood of Saturn. The Fraternitas Saturni, which was small, but a very sort of real group. And it's a one of, one of the strangest things I've come across. Somebody sent this. They said there are four panels from a comic, you know, well, a graphic novel, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's from something from some some sort of a, a, a graphic drawing. And it's of there are just four panels, and they show a young woman who's nude, and, and it's a ritual being carried out in an observatory. There's a big telescope. And and it, what what you get back and forth in these panels is a kind of call and response in the ritual. It's something like, you know, blue-lidded daughter of the twilight, do you know me? And she says, Yes. And it's just that little that little portion of it. And I immediately noticed, okay, blue-witted daughter of the twilight. Well, that's out of the Gnostic mass. That's that's Crowley. That's out of the OTO. But that's not exclusive to just that group. But if you go through this, if you actually look at the words being spoken in it, what in those four panels you're seeing is an excerpt from the fifth grade initiation ritual of the Fraternitas Saturni. That's it. So whoever drew those panels and wrote those captions knew that ritual. And, you know, that's just not that. And it's in an observatory. So let's see that. You look at it and just go, what the hell is going on here? I mean, there's a lot of occultists and stuff all around uh, the space program. Arthur C. Clarke, Hubbard, all these other guys. Well, that's all over everything. That's true. Germs. Right. So, I mean, yeah. And you can see this right here on the picture. You've got the Saturn, you've got the layman from the OTO, CERN, everybody's involved or interested in CERN today. The observatory, double headed eagle, Parsons, all that stuff. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, we're at the hour, 10 minute mark. Uh, Rick, do you mind going over kind of some of your more recent work that we didn't talk about? Uh, last time, we were, you actually didn't even do it at the Secrets of the Occult that you completed late last year, and also just well, the, uh, it sort of goes back to what I've been doing since I retired. Um, I, mostly, most of my work has been done for what's called the Great Courses. They've been sort of going through a corporate reband, rebrand as Wondrium, W O N D R I U M. Um, so if you look under Wondrium or Great Courses, they're still operating as that. So I have done um, Real History Secret Societies, which is 24 episodes. I've done a 12-episode uh, Crimes of the Century, which covers 
various historical murders, some pretty well-known like, like Trotsky's assassination, some less well-known like a couple of murderous maids in France, Lindbergh kidnapping, et cetera, et cetera. Um, also covers, of course, Manson and the Zodiac, but I try to take somewhat different tact on those rather than just following the same sort of, it was this guy, it was that guy. I don't know who it was. Uh, but for instance, in, in the Zodiac, what I'm looking at is that the Zodiac was fairly, he had, had an, a, an occult agenda, didn't he? He said he was killing people to collect slaves for the afterlife. I don't know what's more occulty than that. So what I tried to do was just to look through the case and see what other sort of elements of that came up and to what degree anything could, you know, how do these things fit together? Um, and then most recently, uh, just in the holidays this year, uh, fit for the holidays, ready for a Christmas present was uh, Secrets of the Occult, which is, well, there's a lot of, it's, it's my take on that in 24 episodes of going everything from divination to tarot to necromancy to John D. And I will guarantee you that Aleister Crowley shows up in every single episode. <laughs> That's just the kind of guy that he is. Um, so I think, you know, whether or not you're sort of really interested in that or uh, you're really into the occult or you're just mildly curious, you will find something something useful uh, and entertaining and you know, probably vaguely disturbing in some ways. Uh, and I hope to do some more of those. There may be another Crimes of the Century, too, uh, with more grisly murders from history. Um, there may be others. Um, I've looked into, I also, and then I'm floating around some other ideas. One is called Flying Saucers and Secret Agents, which is sort of me dipping my toes into the UFO thing, about which, again, I am an agnostic, okay? I'm not trying to prove anything one way or the other. People see lots of weird things in the sky. They always have. Are they from Sirius or somewhere else? I don't know, okay? And neither really does anybody else, so far as I can see. Um, so yes. people can look forward to that and I'll put a link to this uh, Wondrium page it's Wondrium forward slash Richard dash B dot Spence so it's Richard B Spence Dr. Richard, Richard B. B Spence Brian somebody was on my middle name and uh, yeah I'm also in a couple of other Wondrium series along with some other people one on forensics I think it's true crime decoding the evidence um, and uh, then also uh, Secrets of Espionage which is just you know about good old spies. All right. And you wrote that book about uh, Sidney Riley, right? So people. Sidney Riley, yes. So, um, Rich, Rick, where's the best place to reach you? Do you have a website or email or is there a social media? Uh, working on a website, uh, you know, long after anybody else, that will be up. But for right now, um, one of the ways that you could reach me is uh, through the University of Idaho. I'm retired, but I still have. Uh, you can you get my email through there, and you know if you have some sort of questions, uh, feel free to contact me. I can't necessarily sure I'll be able to answer your question. If you know uh, if you really have something nasty to say and want to accuse me of being a minion of the devil, you can keep that to yourself and not send it to me in an email, and I will not respond. But any sort of thoughtful, pleasant, polite messages will will I will try to respond. To. And again, it's Richard B. Spence, Emeritus Professor from, of History from the University of Idaho. And we talked today about James Shelby Downer. Downer, and the, the paper that he wrote is 
the limbo of lost memories searching for James Shelby Dunder. I think you found him. I think you found him that he really is a real person. So he is a real, he is that. He is real. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Stay there. Stay there.